Welcome to the Absolute State, a podcast by the investigative shit posters at Left Coast Right Watch. Each week, we'll bring you coverage from the absurdly dangerous to the dangerously absurd. I'm LCRW's editor in chief, Abner Hauge. This week, we talk to Andy Beal, a longtime friend of the outlet and of mine. We studied journalism together at UC Berkeley. Andy has been covering election disinformation in New Mexico, a story that's been overlooked in national media. Then we're going to bring you part two of our long talk with anti-fascist scholar Spencer Sunshine about the absolute state of the far right. But first, some housekeeping notes. A couple new articles to check out this week. First, I wrote a short story on an upcoming neo-Nazi black metal show in Los Angeles with a weird connection to the death of Kurt Cobain. Second, Eli Niesel, our New Vegas correspondent, wrote about the far-right campaign to weaponize the monkeypox outbreak against the LGBTQ plus community. Eli also went on the Doomed podcast with Matt Binder to talk about the article this week. Links to all that in the show notes. Now let's go to our interview with Andy Beale. All right, we're here with Andy Beale, who's reporting for uh, Source New Mexico on a lot of electoral just stuff going on. Andy's a close friend. We've known each other since grad school. I'm glad to see you're still following whatever right-wingers are doing. First, let's start off. Um, there's been a lot of crazy stuff going on with New Mexico's electoral system. Could you give us an overview? So the big national news um, was the issue over the certification of the primary result. New Mexico had a primary election on June 7th. Basically, the next step after the election is that each county has to certify the results this is traditionally just a kind of pro forma measure. Um, there's not really anything for the counties to debate unless there's specific problems with a precinct. You know, if the county clerk comes and says, oh, we didn't get the results from precinct seven, whatever, then they can look into that, figure out what's going on. Generally, it's just supposed to be rubber stamping it like we approve that the election happened and that it was overseen properly. And then it's sent to the Secretary of State where the results become official. This year, for the first time, at least in recent history, there was kind of a rebellion among some of the counties. One county refused to certify the results of the primary elections. Another county delayed certification because they said they needed more time to look at it. And then there were individual county commissioners at some other counties that voted against certifying but were overruled by majorities on the counties. The county's refusal to certify was not based on any legitimate concerns or specific problems with uh, precincts or specific areas of the vote. 
It was based on generalized conspiracy theories revolving around voting machines and ballot drop boxes, uh, directly taken from some of the lies that former President Trump spread during the 2020 election. Uh, and so the problem with this is that this is a major disruption to the electoral system. The voters that cast their votes in those counties are disenfranchised if the county refuses to certify the results. Uh, their votes won't be counted. There's It's sort of uncharted territory what happens if the counties refuse to certify. But the election can't move forward. Those candidates can't you know, hypothetically cannot make it to the ballot for the general election if they haven't been certified by the counties. And so the New Mexico Secretary of State ended up having to ask the state Supreme Court to intervene, which they did. Uh, they ordered the county, they ordered one county in particular, the county that had refused to certify the results, uh, to sort of reconvene and certify the results immediately, which they did. Give us more of the general flavor of the election conspiracy. What's the rhetoric like? It's a lot of stuff that I'm sure most of your listeners are at least somewhat familiar with. One of the main things that keeps coming up, county rebellions, is the movie 2000 Mules by Dinesh D'Souza. Obviously, D'Souza is a longtime far-right propagandist. He's racist, sexist, homophobic, the whole list, um, made a career out of basically making propaganda films that posit large-scale conspiracy theories by liberals. Uh, ironically, he himself was convicted of uh, election-related crimes relating to illegal campaign donations he had made. So 2000 Mules posits that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump through people that are supposedly dumping dozens or hundreds of fake ballots into ballot drop boxes. And to be clear here, there is no evidence of voter fraud happening at any kind of scale that would influence an election in New Mexico or anywhere else in the country. Elections in New Mexico are very secure. There's numerous layers of protections to ensure that voter fraud can't happen. And no one ever brought forth any real evidence of voter fraud taking place in New Mexico. There's also some more kind of bespoke conspiracy theories that are more specific to New Mexico, dealing with results in individual counties and individual precincts that it's, you know, I, I don't want to get too far down into the weeds on it, but the general flavor of it is stop the steal. You know, it is it, it really is the same kind of stuff that we heard in 2020. One of the central figures that's emerged out of this is Coy Griffin. Uh, what can you tell us about him and his involvement in January 6th and what he's been up to now? Coy Griffin is the founder of a group called Cowboys for Trump. They were a sort of alt-right I don't know if it's really fair to call him a militia, but definitely part of the patriot movement. I'm not aware of Cooey Griffin himself ever participating directly in violence, but there were a number of these Trump rallies and Stop the Steal rallies they attended that were also attended by Proud Boys and various other extremist groups. Cooey Griffin is a sitting member of the Otero County Commission, and he's also a convicted Capitol rioter. Not accused of entering the Capitol building itself, but he did knowingly cross over the police lines. 
Uh, he then traveled back to New Mexico and uploaded some threatening sounding messages about returning to Congress and there's going to be blood pouring out of the building. He was sentenced to one year probation, 60 hours community service and a $3,000 fine as well as 14 days in jail, but he had already served that 14 days in jail while awaiting trial. So when he was finally sentenced, he was, you know, basically let free. As I mentioned, he's a commissioner on the Otero County Commission. That's the county in New Mexico that refused to certify the primary election results. After the New Mexico Supreme Court ordered the county to certify the results, Cooey Griffin still voted no. The other two county commissioners changed their vote. They voted in favor of certification. Cooey Griffin called into the meeting from Washington, D.C., where he had just attended sentencing for his role in the Capitol riot and voted no again. This seems kind of like a playbook. Yes, certainly. If you want to be aligned with the Trump wing of the Republican Party, it's sort of a requirement that you have to uphold these kind of election conspiracy theories, right? There's no chance of winning an endorsement from Trump. It's sort of a litmus test for membership in the Trump wing of the Republican Party. One of the big promoters of election conspiracy theories in New Mexico is this guy, David Clements. Um, in your article, I noticed you didn't name his Telegram channel, so we won't either. But uh, what can you tell us about this guy? It's really David Clements and his wife, Aaron Clements. Uh, NPR recently identified them as one of the biggest spreaders of election conspiracy theories on a nationwide level. They've appeared in numerous states. They're actually touring California. So David Clements was a former prosecutor who then became assistant professor of law at New Mexico State University. He was fired in late 2021 for refusing to wear a mask. He started raising money on a right-wing crowdfunding site called Give, Send, Go, even before he was fired. Uh, they later had to update the page to clarify that he had not actually been fired yet. He's so far raised over $300,000 on that, more obviously than the average salary for a public university professor. After being fired, he spun off from COVID conspiracies into election conspiracies. Him and his wife, Erin, have been traveling around the state giving presentations where they lay out these theories about the election being stolen. They've never presented any kind of actual evidence of election fraud happening. They're also pretty heavy into Christian nationalism, so they describe the voting machines as satanic. The general idea is communist, antifa, satanists trying to destroy America. If it sounds ludicrous, that's because it it is. Unfortunately, it's being taken pretty seriously by people in positions of power and people with influence over elections in New Mexico. The ironic thing here is that by voting against certifying these results, these county commissions themselves actually are disrupting the election system illegally, according to the New Mexico Supreme Court. I guess our last question is, there's been threats against election officials, is that correct? Definitely. New Mexico Secretary of State reported three separate threats to the FBI following the standoff with the Otero County primary results. 
there was actually a big uptick in the threats and harassment that came into her office following a Dinesh D'Souza YouTube video. So her office put together a page kind of debunking conspiracy theories around the election. They had a section devoted specifically to Dinesh D'Souza and 2000 Mules. He made a YouTube video purporting to refute their debunking page. And the Secretary of State said that threats and harassment in her office just went absolutely through the roof after that. Uh, David and Aaron Clements frequently target her. The NPR report quoted David Clements as saying they respond to fear. I found a video of David Clements speaking in a church saying that it's time for firing squads. After the Secretary of State went public talking about the threats against her life, he and Aaron started referring to her as Maggie Smollett. They're openly mocking her. Was there any other takeaways before we wrap up? Maybe bright spot to end on is that it seems that the Clements are not actually that popular. We did just have a primary election for Republican governor, and their chosen candidate, a guy named J.C. Block, lost badly. I want to say about 10% of the vote statewide uh, compared to the winning candidate got close to 60%, which is not to say that they're not dangerous. You know, the point is to disenfranchise voters. Well, this has been really informative and I touches on things that people don't think about as much as they should. Where can folks find your work? These articles I've been writing about the Clements are for a website called Source New Mexico. The website is just sourcenm.com. And you can read the articles I've written about the Clements and about the threats against election officials there. Thanks so much for coming on. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Andy. We'll link to his author page at Source New Mexico in the show notes, as well as a couple of must-read articles from him. Next, part two of our conversation with anti-fascist scholar Spencer Sunshine on the absolute state of the far right. If you listened to part one, you know there were some technical difficulties in the recording. We cleaned it up better this time, but it's not our finest hour. Apologies. Last week, we covered Republican politics and Patriot Front. We went on to discuss the late Tom Metzger, a key white nationalist organizer who died in 2020. You know, I was just going to mention Tom Metzger. He was a pretty bright guy. His ideology was really interesting. It's associated with the most violent people because he he recruited the Nazi skinheads. At some point, he got, like, I think he won the Democratic primary in Southern California for a national level race. And he had been a Klan leader. He'd worked with David Duke before that. He recruited a lot of leftists, too. I think there's a lot to be learned from him. One of his editors in his paper was a former Trotskyist. Um, Another one, John slash Gary Jewell, had been an official in the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW. He had been on the, the GEB, the ruling body. He helped run the prisoner support program for many years before he um, floated into third positionism and joined up with Metzger. So, you know, you can, there's an appeal, and we all kind of know this, that um, a, a more sophisticated 
person on the far right can draw in maybe maybe not huge chunks of it, but draw in important figures from the left. And, and people from the left tend to be a little more balanced and have a different way of thinking, and they can take that mindset in with them to the right, and that, that adds something new to the right. A lot of these guys just who kind of cross-pollinated from other areas of life just became some of the most clever operatives. Um, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't just Jewel, another guy who was on the GEB, the IWW's GEB with them, Red Perry Wharton, also became uh, a neo-Nazi. He started working with James Mason. He was actually the go-between between Mason and Charles Manson. Oh, wow. shit. Until Red himself killed a teenager. He was like in his 40s. And then it ended up he had also killed a kid when he was like 13. It was his second murder. That is complete news to me, and I'm just like, what the fuck? I wanted to get back to the Proud Boys just a little bit. Um, I'm very worried about how much, how J6 didn't seem to hobble their organizing, especially on the West Coast. Now they're attacking drag queen story hours in a very coordinated way. And I'm just wondering where you think the group is at at this point. I don't quite know their secret to their success. I mean, they position themselves very well, right, where there's just, there's like some overlap into neo-Nazism and white supremacist, white supremacist stuff, but they've become, you know, totally acceptable to the Trumpists, right? So so they're an accepted, sort of like the Groypers, like we see how far politics have shifted with these these groups can be, you know, totally accepted, you know, within the Trumpists, maybe probably a little more than the Groypers. Um, they're clearly being, you know, it's, um, it seems like it would be easy enough for there to be federal charges against the group for national, especially as coordinating of the disruptions of the, um, the, the drag, um, you know, story, story hours. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it's obviously worrisome. I mean, we thought that group would break down so many times. Um, it may be simply that they are, if you, if you want violent aggressiveness and you have these politics, it's just your place to go, right? Like, like that much violence would be there anyway. It just wouldn't be in one organization, but it's hard to tell. So, yeah, I mean, this is a group, you know, we'll see what the prosecutions, um, result in, but the Southern Poverty Law Center and their annual um, census of far-right groups like that came out at the beginning of this year, the Proud Boys um, had the largest gain of any of the groups, even while the Oath Keepers shrunk. So there was like two different reactions. The militia movement grew the year after the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people and made the, the public disgusted at the militias, but their movement expanded um, for a year. So... I agree with you. We don't have a lot of activity of them out east. Um, I think it is more of a Western Western U.S. phenomenon. Something else that I've been uh, thinking about of, over the last year is, uh, although a lot of people have been uh, prosecuted in, in the wake of J6, uh, like the... How can I say the the ringleaders and the the really top people are uh, are mostly still moving around? Like I I don't think of uh, Enrico Enrique Terrio or Stuart Rhodes uh, as being uh, as being leaders, but uh, guys like uh, retired General Mike Flynn, they're still going around. They're they're talking to quite large audiences every week. 
uh, organizing, fundraising, radicalizing more people. You know, if you were to join the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, well, that that looks very militant. But if you go to a rally with Mike Lindell or or General Flynn, that that's that's still within the bounds of social respectability. And yet, there the ideas that they're exploring are are deeply radical in terms of just changing the entire way of governance or going going back to a constitutional interpretation that is not anything that that most people have experienced right you know, this is a, a style of authoritarian right-wing politics um chipotle matthew lines called it right-wing populism by which they meant something to the right of liberal democracy right these are groups that have a, a contempt for that they still have this weird love of capitalism even when, even as they talk about the swamp or whatever and they, they speak about economics less and less you know and, and withdrawing the u.s from, from international uh, you know from the global economy i had i had hoped you know, for years that there'd be a split in the Republican Party over this, but um, I guess enough of them are okay with it that they can't uh, take the party back or even split the party off. I mean, it'd be great if they actually split the party, but uh, that seems to be too much to hope at this point. Um, I guess uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to ask was when the lockdown hit and in the following years when the pandemic was kind of in its first um, wave, I really felt that anti-fascist researchers should have spent a lot more time on the conspiracy theory groups that grew out of it than they ended up doing. Um, That's a good question. Um even up to maybe 2018, there was a sense of there was more of a real importance of this kind of research, right? That if you could create good documentation, that result would be sort of cornering people off from legitimacy, only accepting in a few situations. And we can see how much that's changed even in the past few years by like the Groypers, right? Right. That their acceptability, that's how you know, and that shows, if you think about it, how much less the research is meaningful. And the research still works for violent people and for open white supremacists, but things that are just short of that, I'm not sure it really, it terribly helps. Um, the problem with the, the Trumpist thing is it's all fueled by conspiracy theories, and I don't believe for one minute that anyone can be talked out of a conspiracy. I don't know what the, the use, uh, I, the anti-fascist research has... I think much less usefulness now, which is painful to say. But that's a, a really good point because uh, something I, I noticed after uh, the 2020 election, it put them back in a, on a position where uh, that they, they could say they were the underdog, which is a, a position they're very, very comfortable with and know how to sell. And it also showed them that after, even after four years of Trump, he was uh, still able to get, was it 71 million votes? Yeah, it was 74, I think. Okay. Uh, that seemed like a, a shot in the arm for the, uh, for the radical right. Anytime that they were on the back foot, they would just, 
stop and think, hey, there's, you know, 70-something million people that agree with me. And uh, that uh, has been giving them confidence and carrying them forward from the last two years. And I feel if they do well in the midterm elections next November, then uh, that they're probably just going to, you know, go 100% and exploit every, uh, every opportunity that they have. Yes, I agree with all of that. Um, in the last election, um, it didn't show that they lost any support. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll never be able to fact check these people to death. Like the 1 6 hearings, I think, are great. There's all kinds of stuff that I didn't even know coming out of them, right? Um, I think they're important, but I don't think they're going to sway anybody. They're certainly not going to sway the Trumpists, you know, maybe three out of the 71, 74 million. The movement in general is incredibly resilient. You know, it's it's not being co- it's not being punctured and deflating. Um, and that is, you know, obviously deeply worrisome. I also want to point out this is an international phenomenon of the uh, National Renaissance, the former um, Front National in France, you know, had their best showing ever in a national election. So it's not just it's not just a quirk of something happening here. Um, you see related things in Latin America and, and Modi and India with the revival of Hindu Mata and stuff. There's going to have to be a different approach. Um, they're ruthless. They have no sense of uh, uh, fairness or you know no qualms with lying uh, in order to get their way. As we all know, the Democrats just can't you know. Um, they seem to have an inability to actually push through something like they always want to like both sides of the aisle or something. Mm-hmm. So we get Democratic majorities and they still won't push through uh, progressive politics or defend what gains we have. So every time, you know, Red gets in power and they're able to ratchet up one or two more um you know, positions, and when the Democrats get in power, they don't change anything. Like, this is a, a very losing strategy. Um, and again, like the, the, you know, confrontations and doxings, I think, are um, less and less successful. So it, there does need to be a successful strategy or strategies, I think, will need to be found. Um, well, let's try and uh, close on a positive note. Uh, what sort of things uh, do you feel hopeful about or uh, where do you see glimmers, uh, uh, glimmers of optimism? Well, I mean, it, it's funny. I think as people, you know, it's common, a common um, way to portray it, that the country kind of is moving in two different directions at the same time. Like, if you're not in conservative areas, like I'm in New York City, um, there's all kinds of revival of activism around all kinds of different stuff. You know, we have socialists, you know, open socialist politicians. Like, you wouldn't even have that 10 years ago, right, where someone's like, I'm a democratic socialist. Some people are like, cool, so are all these other people. I had a guy knock on my door the other day who was in DSA. You never would have had that that 10 years ago, I don't think. Um you know, I have differences with a lot of the specifics of this stuff, but it's obviously been a huge revival in, like, black and indigenous and Asian-American organizing. There's all kinds of new – even when you see all the infighting, there's infighting partly because there's all these new ideas coming out. People are, like, struggling between the different ideological takes on stuff, and that's that's a healthy thing in a way, right? These aren't moribound movements. Um, it's not a time of, of political quietness 
uh, for different uh, parts of the population. I think, um, you know, there's a real interest in an ideological left, which is more sort of my home. It's not a quiet time, and there's new ideas and new things coming out more and more. Um, even the attack on trans rights, in particular, and LGBTQ rights um, more generally, is an attempt to roll back some pretty impressive gains. You know, in the 90s, the idea that trans rights would be mainstream was really just un unthinkable. For me, it was unthinkable. Maybe if you're in the core of the LGBTQ community and you saw it rising, that would be different. Uh, but I've always been shocked by how mainstream it's gotten. Um, and so even the, the vicious attacks on trans people, which you know we should absolutely oppose, um, are almost a sign of success, right? Like it's a reaction to the successes of this movement. And so this has expanded, I think, so many things, you know, the idea that we can, you know, identities, people can choose identities and really in that sense choose who it is that they really want to be in the world um, and that this concept has, I think, uh, the trans movement has actually, you know, helped open that concept in general uh, to all kinds of people. And so um, I, I take I take great hope in that, um, even if it, I don't think, I really don't think we really can lose. It's not a genie that can be just put back in the bottle. Well, that's made me feel a lot more hopeful. Um, seriously, thank you so much for your time. This has been really enlightening and I think our listeners are really going to like this conversation oh good well thank you for having me on the show and um, yeah invite me back anytime and I appreciate all the work that you've done I'm always very impressed by your project and uh, I've got to see it grow you know over the years and so um, yeah I want to thank you for all the work that you do well that means a lot to us um, where can people find out more about your work Spencer that's a so, uh, it's the best question. Uh, it's the best question. So <laughs> let's just have a little moment for capitalism, self-capitalism here. Um, my website is spencersunshine.com. I have links to all my articles there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. It's transform6789. And if you'd like to support my work, uh, you know, I don't work for a think tank. I don't have a job as a professor. Um, journalist wages are really shit I don't have a nice job so you're welcome to support me on Patreon it's Patreon Spencer Sunshine um, you know and I do all kinds of stuff that allows me to um, spend a lot of time but full time I do this work full time um, doing things that maybe other people don't do uh, so yeah check my check my stuff out if you liked what I said you know there's more there's more behind it well thanks so much for everything seriously all right, well, let's do this again soon. Thanks again to Spencer for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us. We're always grateful for his insights. Check out the show notes for some of his previous work. We'll have him back in January to talk about his new book. And that does it for this week's edition. A quick personal note. Thanks to everybody who pitched in with the second round of fundraising for my car's repairs. You can't know how grateful I am. It's been in and out of the shop, but I'm glad to tell you, I'm back on the road. The Absolute State and all Left Coast Right Watch journalism is supported by listeners and readers like you. If you like what we do, you can set up a recurring donation at patreon.com lcrw, or check out our pinned tweet at lcrwnews on Twitter. 
Your donations keep the lights on, and so does your feedback and sharing our stories with others. Thanks again to all our support. Until next time, don't despair, prepare.